I had something to start the call today when I was on my way down here, and now I've forgotten it. I'm sure it would have been the greatest way to start a call that ever started a call. Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. What's been going on? We haven't talked in a while. Well, we released Yeasel 1.3. I saw I that. I saw that. So that was pretty cool. What's new for the users of 1.3? So all of the stuff around generating the schema file that we talked about in the past, that all landed. So we got rid of our, our infer schema macro. And now the recommended way to do things is just have a configuration file that says, hey, whenever you run a migration, regenerate this file. So that that's nice. It lets us get rid of a thing that was just confusing and hard to use and has been around since diesel 0.3 and then the other thing that we did was i redesigned the uh, sql function macro which is the Mm -hmm. thing that you use to declare like that some function exists to use it with the query builder and one of the things that i did as part of this was added support for custom sql functions on sqlite because sqlite's interesting in that you don't create your functions with sql you actually give it a c function pointer Mm, interesting is one way to put that yes but I wanted to get an API that wasn't that and just sort of, yeah, you give us a, a closure that takes arguments of an appropriate type and returns something of an appropriate type. And we figure out how to do all of the serialization and deserialization for you and also how to glue that together with SQLite, which we managed to do. And I was actually really surprised at how easy Rust made it for me to, to be able to do that. One thing that was just kind of neat. So, you know, functions in Rust can be generic. There's no reason you can't define a generic C function other than that C doesn't understand how generics work, and so it would make very little sense to do that. This was one of the few cases where it was a useful thing to do, and I needed to pass a function pointer to run this closure for the specific closure type. I just thought it was super cool to be able to take this C function, tell it the argument types, because it's generic, and then the compiler just generates you know, a brand new normal C function pointer specific to that type, which I mean like, once I did it, I'm, you know, it's one of those, oh, yeah, of course you can do that. But the fact that you can do that so easily made it really, really simple. Because, you know, in, in C, the way you kind of fake closures, because there's no blocks or lambdas or anything like that in C. And so typically you just give it a normal function pointer. And then the first argument to that function is going to be a pointer to anything. And so anything that you wanted to close over, you would just move on to the heap. And then, you know, that pointer gets passed into your function. So the way we did this for Rust was that we just store the Rust closure on the heap, and then that'll you know close over whatever variables it needs to, and then we get that passed to us in our C function where we you know glue things together, grab the arguments from SQLite in calling all of the internal functions that we have to, and and mm-hmm. deserializing them into Rust stuff. But then we can just call your closure, and as far as you can tell, like SQLite's just written in Rust. <laughs> That's cool. I saw the SQLite talk reminded me of, I saw, I think it was Richard Schneeman posting on Twitter and it reminded me instantly of you because he was like, I can't remember exactly how he put it, but he was like, is there any reason for Rails to support SQLite by default? And I was like, hey, I know somebody who's been ringing this bell for a little while. Insert bike shed ring ringing bell. <laughs> and pretty quickly got a reply from Aaron that was like, because SQLite's the most popular database in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't sound like that's going to change just as you suspected i think really right but. no i mean the only well the, the point aaron was making was just that it's easy to get up and running mm-hmm. if you're using sqlite because you know you do have to have sqlite installed on your system but that's the only requirement you don't have to have a, a, a user with permissions or a database set up 
Right. You just need to have the library itself. And so that makes, you know, it, it is for like your first, you know, Rails new build a web blog in 15 minutes. It is good for that and only that. But <laughs> Or if you're running Rails on your Raspberry Pi, it's fine. Right. And you need to log cat stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hey, if you need to run access a SQLite database in an embedded system, I hear there's this library <laughs> written in Rust that hmm. very specifically provides useful tooling for working with an embedded, an embedded system. There you go. All right. Everybody should cut over to that then. One thing that I've been pushing now lately, there have just been a, a handful of people who have been, every time Diesel met, gets mentioned in the comments somewhere, you know, ranting about query builders. And so I've been starting now to try and point out to people, yeah, but even if you don't use Diesel's query builder, we spent a lot of time coming up with a really, really easy to use ergonomic API for raw SQL as well. Right. And like, even if that's the only part of Diesel that you use, I think it's substantially nicer of an API than the alternatives. Yeah, I saw that you updated the homepage to have like an example of doing that as well. Yes. To make it clear that like, hey, you don't have to use the fancy bits here. I don't know if that pull request got merged or not. So what does that get people over just writing a raw SQL query string? Why would I use Diesel? You mean the, the query builder? Or do you mean if you, if you no. just want to use raw SQL? If I just want to use raw SQL, why not just like send a string down over whatever connection library you're well, using? Well, I mean, that's what, that's what our API does. But okay. the big thing is you need to provide bind parameters. And just the API that most libraries in most languages have is something along the lines of method that creates a prepared statement. And then that returns an object that has an execute method on it. And the execute method takes an array of the values for the bind parameters. And that just ends up being, especially since they're going to end up being objects of different types. When you're in a strongly typed language, you have to do something to make them all be the same type. And so the APIs for the SQLite, MySQL, and Postgres libraries that are out there all take a slice, so a borrowed piece of data, where the value is a reference to a trade object for serialization. And all, but the important thing is that all of this is borrowed. So if you're like dynamically constructing the query, it becomes very, very difficult to keep everything where you want it to be. The API that they've developed typically requires you to end up putting things on the heap because you almost always end up needing to either get a vector of the values, which is you know heap allocated array, or you have to put every value behind a pointer. Mm -hmm. And it can be very difficult to just always have a stack pointer. So our API differs in two ways. Number one, instead of execute taking a slice of you know these or an array of these objects, instead you call bind once per bind parameter that you have. And then you actually tell us that the SQL type that you are binding it to. Now we can't verify that, like, so you said this bind parameter is going to be a, an integer. We can't verify that, you know, the SQL actually looks for an integer, but you can at least tell us, yeah, this is supposed to be an integer and we'll make, and we're able to make sure that, okay, and you're only going to be able to pass in arguments that we can serialize to the, to the correct type. Mm -hmm. But then you can pass in owned or borrowed data. It doesn't like, it doesn't matter where it lives. We end up sticking it as you gave it to us in our AST that we end up building. It's a very simple AST because it is literally SQL string, bind parameter, bind parameter, bind parameter. And the other, the other big thing is that we have helpers for deserialization. So if you have a struct, you can just put derive queryable by name on it, and you don't have to write the boilerplate to go in and, and grab each value and assign it to the right field on your struct. Right. That makes sense to me. I mean, I've never found in active record land, I've always been like frustrated every time I actually want to write an, a like SQL statement because... 
I'm always left to figure out like, okay, if I do select here and I add a string, is that all I'm selecting or is it adding to the select clause? Like where's add to where or how's this work exactly? And then if you select something that's not on the record, like not on the active record model and you're still going through the model class to run your query because then you get the from table, which is kind of weird, but it works. And then it just adds these methods to those instances of the model and yep. it seems weird. So I don't know. I, I've always felt awkward about that, which I think is part of the reason why I just enjoy wrapping everything that I want to do that's special in another model that's backed by a view because it just seems to play nicer but nicer once with active record that way as long as you don't need to insert that data. And so this API that I'm talking about would be equivalent to find by SQL in Rails, which has exactly the signature that I mentioned, right? It takes the SQL string and then it takes an array of all of the bind parameters. That's mm -hmm. less of a pain in the ass in Ruby just because everything's already on the heap anyway. And so mm -hmm. like you can just do it. But then we also have a separate API for if you want to just have little snippets of SQL. So exactly like you were saying, if you want to use Diesel's Query Builder for everything else, but there's just some tiny little piece of your select clause that you can't represent in our Query Builder for whatever reason. We have a separate API that's just for little little fragments of SQL that are intended to be embedded in the Query Builder as a whole. And the big difference there is with that one is that you don't write the bind parameters in your SQL. Instead, you actually call bind inline. So it's like SQL foo equals dot bind dot SQL and other stuff. Mm -hmm. Because when you're intending to embed it elsewhere in the query builder, if you're using Postgres, right, bind parameters are indexed. So you have to have dollar sign one, dollar sign two, dollar sign three. And when you're embedding this elsewhere in the query builder, it sucks to have to figure out, okay, how many bind parameters is the query builder going to generate for me before this one? So we have a, a more focused API for that specific use case. Right. You have a nice second system thing going on here. <laughs> Years of using Active Record <laughs> have taught you things you wish existed, right? So, yeah, that's cool. Well, it's also just like no matter how good Diesel's Query Builder is, there are always going to be some queries that just it's easier to write the SQL yourself. Mm -hmm. You know that monster query that we've referenced in the past for the getting the reverse dependencies of a crate on crates.io. Like that query, regardless of how well I can express it in Diesel's Query Builder, that one I just I always foresee that staying in raw SQL where it is right now, which is fine. But I also just, I want to have a good API for those cases. Yeah, makes sense. The RailsConf talk videos have just started to come out. And so or I guess they're probably all out at this point. And so I guess that's apropos of nothing because I ran into something with migrations. Like it, it's funny that like my knowledge of migrations hasn't changed much. Modulo, like understanding what the those compatibility shim things do in the new versions of Rails hasn't changed much until and like the problems I encounter haven't changed much and then I gave a talk on migrations and then like two weeks after that talk instantly ran into a new problem that I'd never encountered with migrations before so what like in the talk I, I talk about ways that migrations can go bad which I call migration rot and mostly these are these tend to do with dependencies and those can be dependencies I think in the talk I specifically reference like using your models in your migrations as a way that things go bad but there are other things too like I can't remember if I ended up keeping this in but like when you pick libraries that add migration methods mm -hmm. Like if you were a paperclip user and you used like paperclips add attachment migration helpers and now you're migrating to something else, those methods don't exist anymore. So do you keep paperclip or do you like edit your old migrations to create those three columns that add attachment creates for you? Or, you know, what do you do there? But I got bit a new way, which was, so one of the things I like to do on projects is to align the language we use among the team about a project with the language that's used in the code 
the project I'm working on now has these things called continuity of care documents. And those are their healthcare records, basically, that when you transition from facility to facility, they fill out this thing and say, like, here are the medications you were taking. Here's this other data, like whatever. But everybody calls them CCDs. And in the code, we referred to them as continuity of care docs. So we spelled out the really long words and then abbreviated the word document for some reason. But everywhere, even in the UI, they're called CCD. And so I got really tired of misspelling the word continuity and decided that like, okay, I'm going to make the code just say CCD. I'm generally against acronyms, but like this is a well-established thing. Like I wouldn't do hypertext transfer protocol, right? I would just say HTTP. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to rename everything CCD, but I want it to be capital C, capital C, capital D, right? So I have to add an inflection for that. So Rails understands that. And so there were like some related migrations that I made as well to that continuity of care table recently. And so then I added a migration that renames the table from continuity of care docs to CCDs, et cetera. So there's a couple different migrations at play in here that people may or may not have run. And I ran each one individually, so it didn't end up mattering but for me but as soon as i merged all of these changes in together other people were no longer able to run migrations because one of the migrations they needed to run referred to continuity of care docs as ccds mm -hmm. but the inflection didn't exist at the time it when i say referred to continuity of care docs as ccds i mean in its class in the migration class name and the inflection did not exist at the time that migration was was written so the class name was capital C, lowercase c, lowercase d. In the migration class name. In the migration class name. So if but you... Why would, that affect any, why would that affect anything? So as somebody else who's like, I need to run these two migrations. One of them has, you know, capital C, lowercase c, lowercase c. But my code tells me at this point that CCD is expected to be capitalized, right? So there should be capital C, capital C, capital D. And so people went to run those migrations. And so what happens when you try to run migrations, it looks at your file system and says like, oh, here's a version number I haven't applied yet. And it has this name. So we should look for this class name. And so it tries to turn that string into a class name, which it now expects to be capitalized. Oh. <laughs> so this is a long way of saying that even adding or removing an inflection can make your pluralization rules, things like that can make your migrations no longer runnable. And so in this case, we just renamed the class. But like long term, I was like, why do these have to even have meaningful names? Yeah, like, no, I'm like, why, why don't we just look for, you know, we grab the file name, load the file and then just and look for the newly created subclass of active record migration. Yep, you could do that. Or you could do, I think what Jen, somebody suggested here, I think it was Eric suggested that I think in Django, all the migrations have a class name of migration which wouldn't work if you're loading up all of the classes, but if you're only loading one at a time, it would work. Right. Fine. But yeah. the problem there, though, is that you would need to create a separate process. Like if you're going right. to run five migrations, you now need to create a new process for each one. Right. I don't know. We could also like, I mean, it's super easy for us to just def inherited migrations from files equals. Actually, I guess that wouldn't give us the file. We would have to use a trace point to get the file. Yeah, that's what I kind of figured. The, we yeah. talked about this a little bit in the chat room and I was like, eh, I can see why they do it. And ultimately, I've been doing Rails for eight years now and this is the first time this has ever <laughs> been a problem but right. it is the kind of thing that's like really perplexing you're like wait what i mean i guess it was it wasn't that perplexing but it's not clear why that has to be the case like and i did some thinking on it and was like okay i understand why they have to do it this way but it just seemed it was fr a new frustrating way for migrations to go bad on me <laughs> right the, the class name is not something that has ever caused a problem for me before yeah, that's a really interesting one. Right. The really frustrating part is the class name of a migration is totally, like, it doesn't matter. 
No, right. nobody cares. Like the file name kind of matters because you're like, I'm looking for the migration that did this thing, and you just search. Right. You like type some words in it, and it comes up right in your right. little fuzz, whatever your fuzzy finder of choice in your editor is. But the actual class name doesn't matter. So maybe it could just be migration, and then the numeric timestamp that would be the class name. Actually, that that's not a bad idea. There we go. I also wish that there was a way in Ruby for a file to actually return a value. So like. Mm-hmm. class equals require this this migration file right oh interesting yeah well like what what happens if you define does class return anything i don't know if the class keyword returns anything but we also do, like could just have it be class.new migration do class foo no class returns nil def returns the method name let's just say you could like instead of requiring the file you could evaluate the file and see if it gives you a class name but it doesn't it gives you nil Right. No, that's what I mean. Like we'd have to start generating migrations by to do some form of class definition that returns the class, which would, you know, just something that involves calling class.new. Ultimately, this wouldn't have been all that remarkable of a thing to hit, but I just thought it was kind of funny that it came immediately after I had just given a talk on all the ways that migrations go bad and not considered this one. Way. It was like, oh, look, another way. But yeah. I, <laughs> right before I came down here, I was actually preparing another Rails patch for a bug I just hit on a client project, which is we're using the rails cache for various things mm-hmm. and one of the things is like we get information about every user that signed in from a third party service so we get your, your the roles that you have and things like that and we cache that in rails.cache whatever right and so when you sign out we want to remove that cache and i guess there are times where sign out for whatever reason in this app there are time where where the sign out action gets hit when a user is not actually signed in anymore so current user is nil Mm-hmm. And so we have like in the sign out action, we have like rails dot cash dot delete current user. And then we use a little lonely operator because we know current user might be nil, I guess. And we say dot cash key, which is something that current user defines or something. I don't, I don't know why. So then what happens when you pass nil to rails cash delete? It works just fine in the stores that you're using in development and in test, but not in the Redis store or probably in some of the other ones where it expects it to be a string. But that's not a requirement of the... I guess the abstract cache store or the regular, you know, the base cache store that everything, right. you know, so the file store, right? I think just cache store is the base and then everything inherits from there and overrides. Basically it's trying to normalize. There's a normalized key method and normalized key. It's weird because the base normalized key method results in a string. If it's always results in a string, if the key is supposed to be namespaced, but if the key is not namespaced, just returns the key that you passed it. So it would still be nil. Whereas if it was namespaced, it would just be namespace and then empty string. So I'm thinking I'm just going to have it call 2s somewhere and then call it a day. But <laughs> and, and then just try and delete empty string. That's fine. What's the big, I mean, if you have a cache key of empty string, then, you know, it'll delete it. Sure. No, that's fine. I, I'm mostly <laughs> just like, I was expecting that to be, and when you pass it nil, it deletes like the entire cache. Or oh, something. yeah, that would be fun. Something ridiculous. <laughs> no, it just gets a no method error. Because in, in a really confusing one, it was like undefined method B on nil. And I was like, B? What is this B method? Who wrote a B method? And it turns out that's how you convert a string to binary, yep. which is what Redis is trying to do there. But there are other other adapters trying to do different things that require string-like things that respond to string methods. Types, man. Types are a thing, <laughs> turns out. Did you know that string has a unary plus and minus operator in Ruby? No. What does it do? So basically, plus is if the string is frozen, it dupes it. But if the string is not frozen, it does not dupe it. And then minus, if the string is mutable, then it freezes it. 
uh, if the string is already frozen, it just returns self. Interesting. So, like, you know how everybody puts the frozen string literal true ma magic method at the top of their files these days? Yes. Well, I don't because I always forget to do it, but yeah. <laughs> right. Well, you know, there's a Rubo copland for this. Hmm. Although it'd be great if we had a ju just a tool that, like, instead of complaining about it, automatically applied that. But anyway, I've always been why I needed a mutable string, like string literal dot dupe, but apparently the correct thing to do is put a plus in front of it. That way, if it is a file that doesn't have the magic comment, it doesn't unnecessarily duplicate the string. So you just have to put pluses in front of lots of things? If, you, if you're going to mutate the string, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I guess that would work. So Rails should start doing that everywhere, I guess. I mean, we don't, we don't tend to create a lot of mutable strings in Rails. Do you have the frozen string literal in Rails? In every file, yeah. Oh yeah, look at this. I'm looking at the file I was just editing. Frozen string literal true. Huh. Cool. I should add that. I should make a pull request to add that to all the files in this project and see what happens. <laughs> Were they, when this was added, did lots of things come up when the frozen string literal was added? I don't think so. I mean, it was a series. It was a long series of pull requests, and like there are some tools that automatically, like before frozen string literal true was a thing. Richard Schneeman had a tool that would go in and call dot freeze on strings that were very obviously allowed to be frozen. What would the strings that are very obviously allowed to be frozen look like? Like if it's being used as a key in a hash, and that's the only thing that you're using it for, stuff mm -hmm. like that. That's an interesting tool. I wouldn't have thought to even try to make something like that, but I'm going to try that and I'll uh, report back. I will experiment with frozen string literal true and report back next week or in two weeks. I just thought it was very interesting, like... The first time I saw a plus string and minus string. Yeah. I've never, I didn't, I didn't even know, like when you, I had to Google it when you were like unary, urnary. Unary. Unary. So I just, I just did like foo minus and I was like, that didn't, that was an error. <laughs> like, <what? laughs> I had to Google how to call them. <laughs> right. Yeah. It goes in, the, it goes in front. It goes in front. Yes. Plus empty string doesn't bother me as much now that I know that it existed, but it always bothered me that if I just wanted a mutable empty string, that string literal dot dupe was the uh, quote unquote correct way to do it. Mm -hmm. So if you just call string dot new, it will give you a binary string, not a uh, UTF-8 encoded string, which can cause problems. And if you do string dot new encoding UTF-8, that's like five times slower for some reason than just empty string dot dupe. Why? I have no idea. All right, then. <laughs> make it faster. Now you need to become Ruby Core contributor, Sean Griffin, to make string.dupe faster. String.new. Sorry, string.new faster. Yeah, string.dupe being slow would probably be a problem. Not many people call it string.new. I wish I could more. I don't. I like hash.new instead of empty hash literal, personally. And I like array.new instead of an empty array literal. Why? It just feels more consistent to me. <laughs> Hash.new has always struck me as a little weird because I, like when it's used to set default values. Oh, yeah. That always surprises me. Anything else? What else? <laughs> I've been on vacation for a week and a half. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, it can just be a shorter episode. Okay. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 159. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.